Insects are at the heart of everything. Um, you know, people may or may not appreciate them or like them, but they should understand that if we lose insects, then life on Earth will collapse. And that sounds terribly melodramatic, but it's true. Um, uh, pollination is perhaps the best understood thing that insects do for us. They pollinate most of the crops that we grow. They pollinate more than 80% of wildflowers. So if you lose pollinators, you're going to lose most plant species and most of our crops. Um, but they also do tons of other things. They help in recycling nutrients, um, getting rid of dead bodies and cow pats and dead leaves and keeping the soil healthy. They're predators of pests. They're food for almost everything. Um, so most bird species, bats, lots of other small mammals, reptiles, amphibians, they all eat insects. So basically, if we lose the insects, we're going to lose everything. And, and it seems like we really are. So essentially we're living through this kind of massive collapse in biodiversity and it should be really capturing the public's attention because we have to do something about it. You're listening to Impacted from the University of Sussex. A podcast series about research for real change. Welcome to Impacted, the podcast series about research for real change. Each episode showcases researchers here at the University of Sussex and considers the impact that their work is having in the world. My name's Will Hood. And I'm Suzanne Fisher-Murray. And the voice you've just been listening to is that of Professor Dave Golson. Dave is a professor of biology who specialises in the ecology and conservation of bumblebees. And so if you were ever in any doubt about just how important insects, and particularly bumblebees, are to life as we know it, then he's the man you should be listening to. So to start off, Dave, uh, it says on your online profile that your childhood was spent chasing butterflies and collecting birds' eggs. That's a uh, particularly lovely picture. Can you tell us more about uh, when your interest in the natural world began and, and particularly your interest in insects? Actually, I have no idea where it came from, um, but I've been kind of obsessed by nature since as long as I can remember. I think most kids are actually, you know, most four, five, six-year-olds. I've got kids of my own and most go through this phase where they love to catch insects and put them in jam jars and look at them and hold them. And there's a, there's a fairly famous um, American entomologist, a guy called E.O. Wilson, um, who's in his 90s now. But he, he's often quoted as saying that every child goes through a bug phase. He's just, he never grew out of his. Um, and I kind of feel the same. I, I, I've no idea why or where it came from, but I've just always loved chasing around after insects and, and kind of find them fascinating. So you studied biology at Oxford and then went on to do a PhD in butterfly ecology at Oxford Brookes before sharpening your focus onto bumblebee ecology and conservation at the University of Southampton. What led you to shift from butterfly ecology to focus primarily on bumblebees? What is it about the bee that is so charismatic for you? It was more accident than anything. I certainly didn't plan it. I was fumbling around as a, as a newly employed uh, lecturer trying to kind of develop a research program and, and uh, actually I, I 
to start with, I tried to carry on studying butterflies, but I didn't have much luck with grant funding. And I was sitting in a, in a meadow one day near Southampton, um, and I was just idly watching bees, I can't remember why, uh, bumblebees on a patch of comfrey flowers. And I noticed them doing something, an odd behaviour that I couldn't explain. And so I ended up getting a, a PhD student to work out what was going on. And I, I came to the realisation that actually bees are just a lot more interesting than butterflies. You know, butterflies are beautiful, whereas bees have these really complicated behaviours and social lives and so on. Uh, and so I, I kind of got hooked. Bees have kind of captured people's imaginations in, for various reasons, I think. Um, I, you know, most insects people don't like. They're frightened of them. They think they're going to sting or bite or whatever. Of course, bees can sting, but nonetheless, we, they seem to be exempt from our normal loathing for insects. Um, and it's partly because they're relatively big and colourful, and bumblebees in particular, which are my kind of speciality, are the biggest and furriest and kind of, they're quite cute, really. But also, of course, the, the linked into that is the fact that they're actually doing something that's really important for people, and a lot of people have grasped that, that they pollinate crops, and that without bees, three-quarters of the crops that we grow in the world wouldn't be pollinated, so, you know, we wouldn't have food, basically. And that's pretty important. And most people... Um, understand that bees should be looked after uh, and are dimly aware that they, they have problems that need sorting out. In order to address some of these problems that need sorting out, Dave went about setting up the Bumblebee Conservation Trust in 2006. Now a nationwide charity with 14,000 members and offices in England, Scotland and Wales, it began life out of the simple frustration that something needed to be done. Can you tell us a little about the charity and what state bumblebees are in? So bees are still declining, sadly, um, across the board. And that's serious because it, it will affect us and it will mean that wildflowers won't get pollinated and potentially could lead to a kind of ecological collapse. So I was an academic at the time. I was up at the University of Stirling in Scotland studying bee declines and what was causing them. Um, and publishing academic papers in journals which most members of the public would think were pretty obscure and would never dream of reading. And I kind of came to the conclusion that it was a bit pointless, that I wasn't achieving anything. And so I kind of got a bit frustrated and thought, well, what's the point? You know, why am I doing this? Nobody's listening. Politicians aren't changing their policies. Members of the public aren't reading my papers. Out of frustration, I thought, well, let's try and do something practical and positive. Um, and so we kind of mooted the idea of starting a charity to, you know, actually create habitat, to campaign, to do things. I didn't have a clue what I was doing, you know, I just went online and got a, downloaded a form and filled it in and, and lo and behold, it existed legally and we applied for charitable status. But without, we didn't have a strategy document, we didn't, didn't have any employees or any money. So um, we were fumbling around trying to work out what to do and we, we put out a press release saying hey guys you know we've started a new charity would anyone like to join and amazingly I, I don't know how it happened really but I got a call from a guy called Mike McCarthy who was the environment editor for The Independent at the time he, he was obviously going to thinking of writing a little story about it or something and we were chatting on the phone and he went away and left me sort of hanging there. And he came back and said, what would you think if we put this on the front page? I said, Brilliant. You know, why? that would be great. And he actually he got the first three pages of a national newspaper. Massive picture of a bumblebee on the front cover uh, for this charity that didn't really 
barely existed at the time. Suddenly we had 500 members and we had no idea what we had piles of checks on the table with no system at all for dealing with them. We hadn't even got a spreadsheet with, you know, so we started manually typing in names and cashing checks and trying to think what the hell we were doing. So this is people sending you money just out of a sense that, okay, this is a problem that needs needs yeah, supporting. I, it quickly became clear that there, that there were a lot of people out there that wanted to do something, that wanted to be part of this organisation. And so it took off and, you know, it's it's got about 20 staff now and offices in um, England, Scotland and Wales and... And it's, it's, it's involved in conservation projects all around the UK, creating flower-rich grasslands, which is one of the key habitats for bumblebees. So there are places you can go and you can walk through a meadow full of flowers where there was no meadow full of flowers. And it's only because that charity you know, made it happen, which, which is really cool. Research that Dave co-authored in 2017 highlighted dramatic declines in flying insects, including bees. The paper reported that the number of flying insects captured in nature reserves in Germany had decreased by 75% in 27 years. Yes, you heard that right. Insect numbers had fallen by three quarters in just 27 years. It seems that basically three quarters of the insect biomass has disappeared in you know a quarter of a century. And that's terrifying. I got got involved once the data had been collected based on trapping of flying insects using things called malaise traps, which are kind of tent-like structures. It's essentially describing how the the total biomass, the weight of flying insects, has changed over time. And it's terrifying. And I must admit, when I first saw the data, I thought there must be a mistake or something was wrong. But, you know, we've been through it over and over again with the fine-tooth comb. So it was kind of gratifying in a way... That, that there was so much media attention for that paper. It's about time. Um, the, my concern is that it'll just be forgotten um, uh, and, uh, and nothing much will, will happen. Um, and somehow we need to make sure that it does. So far, that seems unlikely. This paper has the highest attention score on altmetric.com for the University of Sussex. The story has been covered by more than 200 news outlets and 45 blogs worldwide, as well as capturing the attention of Michael Gove, Secretary of State for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. But Dave is quick to point out that this paper is only one of the many papers highlighting the danger of neonicotinoid pesticides on bee populations that he has written since 2010. Well, I don't. it wasn't just the one paper that came out last year on the German insect declines and that kind of built on a series of papers that we'd written which highlighted the causes of bee declines and the weight of evidence suggesting that pesticides were one of the causes and a significant one and one that we could do something about. From the extremely impressive reach of of the paper, it seems to me that the research has led directly to UK policy change. It's been directly cited in an article by the UK's Environment Secretary as key to his rationale for banning the use of neonicotinoids, a type of pesticide. In an op-ed for The Guardian, he directly refers to your research, saying the statistics were so stark that it was sort of key to his rationale for supporting this, this ban. So could you just talk a little bit about how you think you might have had such a huge impact? What routes did you take to achieving that? So... My research group's been involved in studying the effects of pesticides on 
um, on bumblebees for quite a few years now. But uh, back in about 2010, some of our members were getting very agitated about the effects of pesticides, particularly these um, neonicotinoids. So this whole direction of sort of researching the effect of pesticides, that came through the actual trust, the Conservation Trust members, so from the public themselves. Yeah, it was, it was we had, I had a, a few members that were, you know, quite um, adamant that the, the, the trust really needed to address this issue because, you know, and if we didn't, we weren't going to be able to look after the bees because they were convinced the main thing causing bees to disappear was they were being poisoned. So I was pretty sceptical to start with. I, I wasn't really convinced that we'd find very much. But we, we ran an experiment where we basically exposed loads of bumblebee nests to uh, one of these neonicotinoid pesticides and we had lots of control nests and, and lo and behold we found that actually it did have a really big impact. And we published a paper in Science um, which got a lot of media attention back in 2012. And before I knew it I was embroiled in this very political debate um, about pesticides and you know the pros and cons of using pesticides which is obviously a, an issue which affects farmers and there are, there are very some very strong lobbies the companies that make the pesticides most obviously and also then you know environmental groups campaigning against pesticides and it becomes it often it becomes pretty unpleasant uh, so i we've published a number of papers on this subject including some big reviews and so on um you know we've certainly played a role in providing the evidence um, to governments which has brought about this um, European ban. But certainly in Europe, you know, we, it's hard to know exactly how big a part we played, but uh, we contributed somewhere along the line to the decision. The 2012 research paper provided important evidence to the European Food Standards Agency, which was commissioned by the European Parliament to review the impacts of these chemicals. The review directly led to a 2013 European Union moratorium preventing the use of the three nicotinoid pesticides on flowering crops such as oilseed rape and sugar beet, which appeal to bees and other pollinating insects. The EU expanded the ban in 2018 to all field crops, although they can still be used in sealed greenhouses. So just coming back to the route to impact, because I know for so many researchers, being able to influence policy is a very important aim that, that's, that they have. Um, could you just sort of outline what you think led to this success? How do you think Michael Gove found this research? One of, the, one of the big problems with impact generally is, you know, how do you actually assign or credit to any one particular organisation or scientist or publication or whatever. So it was a great relief, actually. It was nice when Michael Gove specifically mentioned our paper as one of the key pieces of evidence. But to be fair, you know, that, that was really one of many that he might have mentioned. It was the most recent and dramatic. I don't think there's any kind of magical process by, by which one can guarantee that you're ever going to get any formal acknowledgement that a policy is based on a, uh, on a particular paper. It's very rare. Um, and we were lucky in that sense. As part of a separate research project, Dave also wondered whether well-meaning gardeners were doing more harm than good by buying ornamental plants from garden centres that were advertised as being perfect for pollinators. One of the things we're keen on is trying to um, get people to garden in a bee-friendly way. And it's a really you know, nice thing. It gets 
but the public involved. They can do something in their back garden that actually genuinely helps wildlife. In my kind of dream world in the future, our cities would be kind of giant bee nature reserves teeming with nice flowers. But we were aware that uh, having been embroiled in this debate over these pesticides and their use in agricultural crops, it occurred to us that this might also be an issue in the ornamental flower industry because we know that um, ornamental plants that you can buy in your local garden centre, they're reared in a kind of almost industrial system in giant glass houses often. And given that these are they're persistent chemicals, we know they can last for months or years in plants, it wasn't a great jump of logic to suspect that the plants on sale in our local garden centres might contain these and perhaps other pesticides. And so we thought, well, let's have a look. But I didn't have any money for it and wasn't at all clear where I would get money for it. And so we crowdfunded the, the, at least some of the money that we needed to, to do the work which basically meant a public appeal, which we promoted with social media. And uh, I put a video on my uh, YouTube channel of me standing in my garden talking about this issue. And uh, and we asked people to give us money. Very bad for bees. Um, They include uh, insecticides called neonicotinoids, which... um, The audio you can hear is from Dave's own YouTube channel, in which he has sat in his own garden explaining to the public exactly what he thinks the problem might be and also how he thinks they might be able to help. A lot of the plants that you can buy uh, from your garden centre, that you might buy specifically because they're really good for bees, um, have been uh, treated with pesticides, or we think they have. And the garden centres that sell them and the supermarkets and so on They want them to look beautiful, they want them to look perfect, they don't want nibbled leaves or brown bits or whatever. And so to make them look perfect, um, the the wholesalers that rear them um, treat them with lots of chemicals. Um, And some of those chemicals are very, very bad for bees. Um, So the long and the short of it is, um, I'm asking for you to donate some money. Um, Anything will do. Um, Hopefully if enough people think this is an important issue, then we'll get enough money together to be able to screen a whole bunch of of, uh, bee-friendly flowers from different suppliers around the UK and test them and see who is selling uh, healthy plants that are free of insecticides and who's selling ones that they shouldn't, that have got insecticides in them. Um, and we offered dubious inducements to get people to do it. You know that, that uh, um, if they well if they gave if they gave enough money, they got a copy of one of my books okay. signed. And um, and if they gave even more, they got that. And they got invited to a walk around the campus with me, kind of looking at bees and and a talk and and things like that. Which and, and how many of those did you do? We dished out a lot of books. Um, I we had one big walk on campus that was it that was for the elite donors that okay. gave us uh, quite a lot of money i forget the exact amount that they had to pay but it, it worked when you're studying pesticides you have to be really careful where your money comes from certainly if you take it from industry then then many people will think you're compromised if you take it from an ngo a charity other people will say you're compromised if you take it from the public it's kind of unclear where that falls in the in the spectrum of things because Clearly, many of the members of the public who gave the money, they had an opinion about this subject, probably were anti-pesticides and wanted to find out more about this. But my feeling was that it didn't put pressure on us. If we hadn't found any pesticides, we would have just told everyone, it's all fine, you don't need to worry about this. Paper published in 2017 
found that plants often labelled bee-friendly were full of insecticides and fungicides with 70% containing neonicotinoid pesticides, neurotoxic insecticides used to control pests, which are known to be harmful to bees. Friends of the Earth based a campaign pressuring garden retailers to stop using neonicotinoids based on this research. At the latest, 10 out of 10 of the top plant retailers in the UK have promised to withdraw neonics within the next year or so. So it's, a, it's a, you know, it's nice to feel we've, we've achieved something. It's not as much as I would like um, because the attention has become very focused on neonics um, and I fear that they'll just replace them with some other insecticide so the plants will still not be perfect for pollinators in my view. But it's it's a step in the right direction. I think we might have to repeat the study to find out what they're replacing them with in a year or two's time and then revisit the whole issue. So, yeah, it's a bit depressing, to be honest, but um, I sometimes wonder if we're really making any progress because although we've had this, you know, uh, decision, now the, the retailers of ornamental plants are withdrawing those chemicals and Europe has banned them for use in farming... But if they're just replaced by something else, and if in you know, 10 or 20 years' time it turns out the new chemicals are just as bad, then we've achieved absolutely nothing. So it's nice to see some progress, but also frustrating. You know, there are bigger issues that need addressing. This, this, the fact that farming and flower production and the rest of it is, is so heavily dependent on pesticides generally. And unless we can influence that and move away from, uh, from that, then I'm not sure you know, we're going to achieve a great deal. Dave's work reflects a real willingness to listen to and interact with the public. Just as questions posed by members of the Bumblebee Conservation Trust led him to research the effect of pesticides, he is also keen to work with citizen scientists to collect data. So you and uh, Rob Fowler set up the Buzz Club, which aims to get citizen scientists involved in saving pollinators. It's encouraging the public to collect data about how many bee species and pollinators there are. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this citizen science approach. Why do you think it's important and what's been the impact of activities to date? Um, I should say, just for the record, that the Buzz Club was kind of set up by a whole bunch of us. It wasn't just me and Rob. And it's a sort of informal consortium of PhD students and postdocs and academics with no official legal status. But the idea is we want to try and harness the energy and enthusiasm of the public to help us do experiments. And that's not a new idea at all. There are lots of people using citizen science around the world. So the, the general principle is a really interesting one. The idea that, you know, there are millions of people out there, um, at least some of whom are interested in, in this instance, bees. They're not necessarily scientists or may have no training at all in science, but they're happy to help. There is the potential to collect huge amounts of really valuable data um, by involving the public. You know, if we want to do an experiment ourselves, then we need to raise money to employ staff. And, and you know, one person can only be in one place at a time. You can only, send, you know, do so. You can, you're very limited in what you can physically do. But if you can get 10,000 people around the country to all help you, then suddenly you can do amazing things. You know, you can sim simultaneously count bees in 10,000 different places, uh, which you couldn't possibly do with a research grant. So citizen science has loads of potential. It's difficult sometimes. It can be time-consuming dealing with all the inquiries and the confused people because you've 
that didn't make the instructions quite clear and they didn't understand it or or whatever um and sometimes the quality of the data is is open to question it depends exactly what you're asking people to do if it's but there are ways of of measuring how accurate they are um and broadly i think it's a you know it's a really fantastic tool that Dave is the principal investigator on a project which is planning to work with citizen scientists to collect data on pollinators, crop yields and pesticide use, which is part of the Sussex Sustainability Research Programme. The project will analyse small-scale urban food production in small farms and allotments on the margins of both Brighton and Calcutta in India. Actually, we don't really know for sure um, what the benefits and costs are relative to conventional farming. Um, and so food production in allotments and, and gardens in Brighton has this really interesting parallel in developing countries where actually there um, a significant proportion of food that's consumed in cities is grown in and around the city itself. So having recently visited Calcutta and looked at some of these little peri-urban farms around the city, surprising how similar they look to a Brighton allotment, despite the fact that it's in the tropics and the culture and economy and everything else is completely different. You've got people with small patches of land growing rows of carrots and spinach and and tomatoes and almost many of them the same crops, surprisingly. So there are some important differences, but really interesting similarities between the two systems. And we're trying to find out more about how much food is produced, what's pollinating the crops, uh, what pesticides are people using. Is it a more sustainable kind of model of food production? Um, and to do to find out the answers to those things, we're we're trying to get the the people doing it to to help us. You know, we need them to tell us what pesticides they're using, to to measure the yields of the crops that they um, they gather. Um, we're asking them to try and record what's visiting their crops in terms of pollinators and and so far as they can identify them for us there are big challenges particularly when you're working in in india and there's a language problem and actually many of the people uh, the growers can't read or write um so it's not necessarily easy um but it's really interesting work so to switch tracks a little bit um i want to talk about your popular science books so you've written three, I believe, that have yeah. been well received. Now, a Guardian review of BeeQuest uh, last year said, uh, and I'm quoting, you'll learn all sorts of interesting things without effort because he's a natural storyteller with a particular gift of understatement that is often laugh out loud funny. So do you recognise yourself as a natural storyteller? Uh, I wouldn't have done, but the books seem to be being well received so I guess I must have some kind of talent for it but yeah I I really enjoy writing um, for a kind of popular audience and so I I, over a number of years I I wrote uh, Sting in the Tail which is is about the kind of life and times of the bumblebee really interesting stuff about their biology some of the more um, uh, you know, depressing stuff about their declines, but also trying to inspire people and, and just engage people with caring about these little things. But it, 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 rather than just being a, you know, this is the biology of a bumblebee, which if anyone wants to read about that, they can read my academic book about bumblebees. But um, obviously, if you want people to, to pick up a book and read it, uh, people who, you know, aren't necessarily 
fascinated by bees to start with, then you need to make it entertaining and interesting and it needs to be, you know, a more of a kind of personal story, I guess. Academic papers are read by hardly anybody um, and, you know, very few of them have any real reach at all. Um, I literally, most academic papers might be cited five or ten times in there, some of them not at all, um, and they're probably read by a few dozen other academics. Whereas a popular science book, if you're lucky and and it, it does well, might be read by hundreds of thousands of people. Um, you know, Stinging the Tail is now in 14 languages, sold about a quarter of a million copies that I know of. Um, that's a lot of people. Do you get fan mail, Dave? <laughs> Uh, occasionally, yeah. Tell us a fan mail story. I get, I get, I, I, I often get a little email from some total stranger saying, you know, I picked up your book. Um, I didn't know much about bees, but I really enjoyed it. And now I've planted my garden full of flowers, or I've sown a meadow full of flowers, or, or what, you know, that kind of thing, which is lovely because it it makes you realise. I mean, you never get that in science normally. You know, you could write a million scientific papers, and you're never going to get fan mail from another scientist saying that they've done something differently as a result. But actually, people saying that they've changed their behaviour, you know, as as a result of reading some rambling anecdotes from me in a book. It's pretty cool. When I spoke to you on the phone when we arranged this interview, uh, you told me that the following day you were um, off to Hyde Park to dress up as a bee <laughs> with Chris Packham yeah. uh, to campaign for the day. So I wondered how you feel about being this celebrity bee man. Is there ever any tension between this uh, role as an academic and a campaigner? Or, or do they there just is, fit together? There is. It's, it's really interesting. I don't actually know how to play this. 30 years ago, if anyone was seen dressed as a bee in Hyde Park on a stage, that would have been the end of their academic career, probably. Of course, you know, now we are encouraged to, to get involved in outreach, trying to actually turn, make our research have impact, which is, I think is how it should be. No point in doing it otherwise. But it does raise interesting questions about, you know, where do you draw the line? On the one hand, we're told that everything we do, if possible, should have impact. But then we're told that when they don't like what we're saying, we should be quiet. I mean, at the end of the day, um, these are really serious environmental issues that government needs to do something about. And to date, they I don't think they've done anywhere near enough um, about these things. So I kind of think it's my job to keep badgering them until they do do something. Now, of course, that's not the traditional role of the academic. You know, uh, most academics publish their results and then leave someone else to decide if, this, if that should result in a policy decision or whatever. But that route hasn't really worked. I don't think we can just trust government to to properly evaluate all the scientific evidence and make the right decisions. I think scientists should be prepared to stand up and when they think the wrong decision has been made, say so. If we won't do it, who is going to do it? Um, So I kind of see it as my job, but I'm not sure that everyone would agree. You've done so many different things. Given your success, what would your advice be to early career researchers? It's really difficult, actually. I, you know, I, although I do loads of impact-related stuff, I don't kind of feel I'm any. I'm a great expert in how other people sh- should do it, if I'm honest. Um, but I would say, um, 
don't be driven by the ref. Um, I really worry that people think we're only, in universities, we, we're only trying to have impact so we can score points for, for the ref. Um, actually, Which you know, is, the, of course, the research excellence framework. Indeed. Yes. Sorry, yes. And, and you'll frequently hear people talking about, you know, oh, we must have some impact for the ref. Actually, I think if you spend your whole time chasing after ref impact, you're kind of losing sight of why we should be having impact in the first place. And it's not for the ref. It's because, actually, don't we want to make the world a better place? Isn't that the point of what we're doing? And I would just say, you know, f- just just follow what you think is, is interesting and don't be frightened to... to you know, interact with the public. There's nothing. There was a time when that was considered something academics shouldn't do, but there are actually loads of really interesting ways that you, you can engage. So give it a go. Thanks, Dave. That was a real pleasure. Cool. Yeah. It's great. Thank Sorry, you. Sorry, so I couldn't think of good answers to some. No, of them. I, I think you did. It was great. You As did. I say, it's going to be drastic. Yeah, yeah. You can edit out all the yeah. boring crap. <laughs> 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 we'll make you into a natural storyteller. Absolutely. Yeah. I look forward to hearing it.